But what happens when the people we don't like or even hate love us? See, that's the question that's almost more profound than how do I love my enemies, but how do I respond to love that comes from the people that are my enemies? I want you to think about that as we listen to a story that Jesus told. And you've heard this story more than likely many, many times before, and it has all kinds of implications. And it's one of those stories that whatever you come out of the story with, it's correct. Whatever you leave going, this is what Jesus wants to say to me, you're correct. It's a very simple story. But at the heart of it, in the middle of it, Jesus places this teaching, this reminder for us, and it's simply this, that hate, our hate, tends to lose strength up close. Our hate tends to lose its strength up close. If you have a Bible, Luke chapter 10, again, you've probably heard this story before. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. Um, anybody heard this? You've probably been to a hospital that has the Good Samaritan in it. Uh, there's Good Samaritan laws. There's, if you did something nice for a stranger, hey, you're a Good Samaritan. All of these things we've heard of. Uh, it has its roots in this story, which may or may not have been an actual event. Jesus doesn't say, now I'm going to tell a parable. He just starts to tell this story. So it could have been something that actually took place. But let's take a look at the setup. Verse 25, and behold, very biblical intro, and behold, a lawyer stood up to test him saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So there's the conversation. But he, desiring to justify himself, it's a little inside, so what's going on in the lawyer's heart, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Very simple question. But it's also a legitimate question in the times in which that question was asked. The neighbor to Israel, uh, when that is defined, the neighbor has all kinds of rights and privileges coming to him or her. So the question is not illegitimate. It's not, he is trying to trick Jesus into something, or he's trying to maybe have Jesus walk away going, I really don't know. You know, this debate's been going on for a long time, and I really don't know. But the question is legit. Who am I responsible to and for? And Jesus replied, as always, with a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, which the audience at that point goes, of course he did. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And then he asks this question, Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, and I'm just going to inflect, as I think the lawyer answered with, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said, what? 
A little louder so the whole class can hear you. The one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, you've probably heard this story before. And it can live, as I said, well enough on its own. Even if you don't know anything about the social, political, religious uh, backgrounds that are in the story. You can hear it without knowing any of those things and walk away at least knowing, okay, I should do what I can to serve those and help those who are in need. You don't need a, uh, a seminary degree to get the gist of the story. But if you had a seminary degree or you knew of someone who did, there's real gold in this story. The key word in the heart of the story is the word Samaritan. Say that, Samaritan. Now, you've probably heard us say, or if you grew up in church, you've probably heard those people say, oh, the Jews and the Samaritans, I think they really hated each other. It's quite an understatement. Just a real brief history of Samaritans and Jews. The first reference to Samaria that we have is actually in Genesis. It's known as Shechem. And Shechem is a place where Joseph's daughter was raped by Samaritans. There's another story in the book of Judges where this uh, governor of Samaria, Abimelech, murders all of his rivals. After the reign of Solomon, David's son, Israel splits into two kingdoms over slavery, no less, a north and a south, but you wouldn't believe that the south was anti-slavery in Israel's story. The southern kingdom was more freedom, you know, but it split into two kingdoms over slavery and taxes to fund slavery. And the northern kingdom was known as Israel or Ephraim, and the southern kingdom was known as Judah, which is where we get the word Jew. Jerusalem is there. It's the capital city of the south. Samaria is the capital city of the north. Both cities had temples. There were stark differences between how they viewed the Bible and how they viewed the Old Testament, how they viewed worship and how you should live and so on. So two different religious systems began to form. They're both from the same Branch. They're both from Moses, they're both from Abraham, but they're starting to separate themselves. In the middle of the 6th century BC, uh, the Babylonians destroy the southern kingdom and its temple as well. It's gone. And there's a book in the Old Testament known as Nehemiah. And Nehemiah recounts the rebuilding of the wall around the city. And you'll notice if you read that book, which I know you're doing this time of year, uh, There's a lot of resistance to rebuilding the city, and the resistance is coming from Samaritans, not outsiders, not but sort of these strange inside Jewish-ish people. They're resisting the rebuilding of the city. Well, Judah answers several hundred years later, goes into Samaria and just burns their temple to the ground. So it's quite a frat system that's going on, this tit-for-tat that's happening between the northern and the southern kingdoms, between Samaritans and Jews. In John's gospel, he says these words, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And that statement, its roots are of hatred are deep and long. So in this story, what you have to understand is that the man in the ditch is being helped by a man who comes from a people who would love to see the man in the ditch die in the ditch from exposure. But the man in the ditch is being helped by a man who he hates at every level, culturally, religiously, politically, and who would love nothing more than to trade places with the man so that he could be the one to pass by and watch him die in the ditch. It's a very interesting story. Um, 
a Jew, but also, interestingly enough, a New Testament scholar at Vanderbilt University, Amy Jill Levine, reframes the story this way. Samaria today has various names, the West Bank, Occupied Palestine, Greater Israel. To hear the parable today, we only need to update the identity of the figures. I'm an Israeli Jew on my way from Jerusalem to Jericho, and I was attacked by thieves, beaten, stripped, robbed, and left half dead in a ditch. Two people who should have stopped to help passed me by. The first, a Jewish medic from the Israel Defense Forces. The second, a member of the Israeli-Palestinian Mission Network of the Presbyterian Church USA. But the person who takes compassion on me and shows me mercy is a Palestinian Muslim whose sympathies lie with Hamas, a political party whose charter not only anticipates Israel's destruction, but also depicts Jews as subhuman demons responsible for all the world's problems. It's actually the parable of the good Hamas member, if that helps it put, and put it into perspective for you. One more thing about this. We often see this story as, or interpret the story as, what should I do with the people on the margins of society? Oh, this is about the people on the margins. But it's not about serving the people on the margins. The Samaritan in the story clearly has money. He can travel and do business. He has influence in the world. He will come back and fit the bill for the guy's stay in the inn. This is a story about very real hatred that exists between groups who have similar resources, which is where most of our tension and hatred lies. It's not with people beneath us or on the margins. It's our own. And in the story, oddly, the Samaritan stops. Something clicked inside of him, and he stopped. It's this part of verse 34 that speaks to this so well, that he went to him and bound up his what? His wounds. What are wounds? Wounds are what make us human. We bleed. We get hurt. Exposure. There's pain. We can die from our wounds. Many of you probably have scars from former wounds. We can share stories about our wounds. We can sit at a table and say, show me your scar within reason. (laughs) And we can share stories of our humanity. I have a nice scar here from the time I got run over by a truck in 2009. We're coming up on that 10 years, so hold for that throwback Thursday. Uh, It's quite a picture. But... It's very often that when I'm out and sitting at a table and strangers will say, what happened to your arm? And I'll tell you the story. And then they'll tell me a story. Well, I've got this thing here. Wounds are what make us human. And when we see the wounds of others, if we see them correctly, we no longer see what's different about us, but what makes us the same. Wounds are the humanity of the man in the story. That he is no longer the other, but he is now one of. Um, I feel like I should preface this with saying I'm not a watcher of The View, uh, mostly because it comes on during the day. I do like Whoopi Goldberg from Sister Act. Um, But my YouTube feed will sometimes suggest it, I guess based on the people they have on it. And um, 
I think last week they had Seth MacFarlane on there, who I think is very, very funny, um, if you're into that. And it's like, well, I have to watch this. And of course, I know this will surprise you, it was a political conversation. Um, and they, if you watch it, it's interesting because they try and pin him to say something critical, which he doesn't mind doing. I've seen that. But he says this line, and it's so true, and it's almost as if Jesus is saying it, because this is exactly what Jesus is saying in the story. But Seth MacFarlane says, look, it's, it's difficult to hate someone up close. We have to get to know people to see if we really do hate them. It's difficult to hate someone up close. The inverse is also true. It's very easy to hate someone from afar. You can be a world-class hater in the comment section, but it's a different story when you're up close. And in this story, Jesus pulls his listeners into this very frightening space of acceptance and inclusion, not based on sympathies or allegiances, but on compassion and mercy. Jesus calls his listeners and us to see the wounds of people. And in doing so, we might see and experience the love of God. And sometimes it's our enemy who sees the wounds in us. And they stop and they help us. What if you saw people through the lens of their wounds this week? What if instead of the normal categories that you place people in, you saw everyone as carrying around the shared human experiences of grief, of loss, of fear, of loneliness. We all are in part, all of us are in part, who we are because of our injuries. So the thing that you hate about somebody, there's probably a story. We don't just hate someone and there isn't a reason, or they don't just hate us and there isn't a reason, but that reason may come from a place of injury. And what bothers me about someone may be something that they have gone through that's shifted their character, that's shifted the way that they interact with people, has shifted the way they respond. And so what if instead of just seeing people in the categories that we've predetermined for them. That we walk around this week and we see people as carrying around those shared experiences of grief and loss and fear and loneliness. Again, it's back in your workplace. I mean, who are these people? Someone who bothers you, whom you may even hate for whatever reason. There's probably a story. There's probably a scar or that person in your neighborhood or in your building. I know that this is what God is doing with me. I mean, there are five people in my building that I'm like, if I never have to stand at the mailbox with them again, it's fine. You know, I feel that way. But I know that there will come a time where that begins to crack or the person here at church. Some of you may hope and pray that we never ask you to serve communion. 
Not because you're nervous in front of people, but because you don't want that person to come down the aisle. But I would suggest to you, that's the best thing you can do. Is to hand someone the bread and say the body of Christ is broken for you. I'm telling you, it's an emotional moment when you serve the bread and the juice to an enemy. But that's what got Jesus in trouble. Why does he eat with these people? Doesn't mean he approves of their stuff, but it means that he loves them and he sees past those things. And I've learned that given enough time, my enemy will help me. Now, you may not have lived long enough to experience that, but it will happen. And the thing is, I usually learn also that I see them as my enemy, but they never saw me as theirs. And it's in those moments that God is just going, he's learning. And it's in those moments that I learn most about God's love. And if I follow Jesus' advice on loving my enemies, I learn it there too. And so what if these questions dominate my thinking at times, but what if, what if a church had no enemies in its own eyes? As a pastor, there are people in the church that want the church to name its enemies. Now, either I'm just too scared to do that, which I don't think is the case, or I think that's the wrong thing to do. What if the church saw no one as its enemy? And if you're thinking, yeah, that should be the case, that's in your court. You're here. It's in all of our hands to change that. What if our church here could really, really learn the rhythms of this story? What if we could learn how to live as a neighbor in this way? I said this last week, and I'll close again with this statement. But church, really, uh, for all it is, it's just practice. When we talk about the kingdom of God or heaven. The church is simply just a place. It's the combine. It's a place to just come and practice. We learn how to love our enemies here because they're here. We learn how to forgive here. We learn how to uh, love one another, our neighbor, here. We learn that anywhere, of course, but the church's job is to keep reinforcing the ways of Jesus in its own congregation, and that's It's practice. It's practice for how we interact with the world. Sometimes the church leads the way on that. Sometimes it's behind. Sometimes it falls behind culture. But sometimes it leads the way. And I think in the days in which we live now, the church may, could be the leader in how to love all people. It could be. It should be. The church should be the most frustrating community that the world looks at because of the people that are in here. 
This is, a, this is accredited to so many different people, so I won't even name an author. But the gospel is frustrating not because of who it keeps out, but because of who it lets in. That's why it's frustrating. Not because of who its enemies are, but because of who its friends are. And so let me just leave you with this. Live long enough and your enemy will help you. And Jesus wants you to ask the question today as you leave, what would I do in that situation? What would happen to you this week if you went into work and that person served you? It's your call. But what Jesus hopes through this story is that you would allow your enemy to love. And in doing so, that your heart would grow for him or for her. Amen?